Today's scripture is Galatians 5, verses 16 to 25. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. You may be seated. As you're seated, allow me to pray for us. Uh, Father, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit that you have poured out upon all who are yours as they come to repentant faith in you. As they come and repent of sin and turn their faith toward you, you fill us with your spirits. We thank you that we can celebrate the work of your spirit in our lives. We thank you for the sufficiency of Christ's work in our place, that he has brought us to a place of salvation. And we thank you, Father, for your good plans, for you ordained all of this from before the foundations of the earth. We thank you. We trust you. We ask you that you would strengthen us as we hear this word today in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is the third Sunday in this passage, the third and final Sunday in this passage. Uh, We kind of looked at it uh, overall, then we looked at it last week a little bit narrower in terms of the fruit of the Spirit. And then this morning, my task is actually to focus in uh, not on the entirety of the fruit of the Spirit like Jake did last week, but actually to focus in on one uh, of the list of nine that we have here of the fruit of the Spirit. I'm going to talk about self-control. I'm going to talk about self-control. Popular topic, I can tell just by your response. That's great. Uh, I'm also a master of self-control, so that's why I should lecture to you on on how this works. Um, Well, I'll get into that later. Here's some questions that can kind of prime our thinking on this and why this is an important topic. Um, Why can't I seem to control my jealousy? Why can't I seem to silence the envious thoughts in my mind as I look at other people's lives? Uh, Why am I still battling at this point in my life with anger? Why do I waste so much time online trying to please people I don't know? Why do I fall into the same stupid sexual sin over and over and over and over? Why am I so tempted to self-medicate with drugs and alcohol? Why is it that money and success have become like a god to me? Seven questions that I took out of the list of what Paul calls the works of the flesh in verses 19 to 21 in our passage in Galatians 5. Just seven questions to prime our thinking. These are the things that we're talking about when we're talking about self-control. If you resonate with any of these, be reminded that, like I said, Paul the Apostle wrote this letter to the church in Galatia, and he said, these are works of the flesh. Um, Two weeks ago, I called them signs of the ongoing battle. The fact that we live in between the times, that we live in between the time of Christ dying in our place for our sin, 
rising to new life to give us eternal life, and then ascending to the right hand of the Father. That happened, and we live in between the time of that occurrence, of those events, and the time when Christ will return in glory. We live in between the time. These works of the flesh are signs of the ongoing battle at work in us. Now, if you don't resonate with any of the questions that I just shared, I would also add that lying is probably considered a fruit of the flesh, a work of the flesh, and that perhaps, you know, when you get home, just take your mirror that you look in every day and just give it a wipe. Just give it a wipe so you have a more clear image, a clear picture of yourself. Because all of us struggle with something like this. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you showed up here today and you're like, okay, here we are gathering together with all the perfect people, you did not come to the right place. You came to the place with a bunch of people who can go, hey, I'm not perfect, have not sorted it out, is not figured out, still in progress. Okay, that's us. Now, Christ on our behalf, perfect. Perfect on our behalf. That's the good news of the gospel because this group sitting around you right now, not perfect. Guy with the microphone strapped to his head does not have this figured out yet. I am nothing but a brother in Christ, a fellow pilgrim walking with you, a fellow follower of Jesus trying to work all of this stuff out. So my task is to get to self-control. Here's the caveat I would give you. I'm probably more in need of this sermon than you. And I think I'm still okay with the fact that I can preach it to you because I'm not preaching on my own authority. Anytime we open God's word, and this is just has nothing to do with the sermon, but I like talking about it. This is, this is our authority. So God reveals his will to us for human beings. Here's his revealed will written in 66 books of authoritative Bible. Okay, my authority borrowed from here. So that's why you can have somebody as imperfect as me talking about self-control with you this morning because we're just talking about this. If I was to recommend one book aside from the Bible on the topic of self-control, I would recommend to you a new book called the Fu- Your Future Self Will Thank You, subtitle Secrets to Self-Control from the Bible and Brain Science. Uh, it's written by an author named Drew Dick. It is very well-researched. It is very well-written. It is very enjoyable to read. And I'll share a few things this morning that I learned from that book. Um, I also read that book at an all-inclusive resort, which is not exactly um, a place of self-control. Like buffets at all-inclusive resorts are signs that that our society should talk about this a little bit. Um, So Your Future Self Will Thank You by Drew Dick. It's a good book. Uh, It's an easy read. Really, really, like I said, well-written. I think it's great. We've been talking about Jesus plus nothing equals everything all the way through this series. I think we could talk about buffets minus self-control equals regret. But that's just another formula (laughs) that you can add in. not arrived at self-control, um, but I'm growing. And I think one of the reasons that I'm growing in self-control is because I'm intentionally working at it. So I'm going to talk about how the Spirit leads us and guides us in this, but don't take yourself out of the game and think that this is supposed to just magically happen. Right? When you say, oh Lord, please give me self-control, do you know what he does not do? He does not walk up and go, Zoom! self-control. And he's not a magician. Like, this isn't Harry Potter, sort of whatever. I don't know the books that well. But whichever one. It's not Gandalf with, you know, wizardry. Self-control. I dub thee self-controlled. That's not, that's not what's happening. 
You ask God to give you self-control, he gives you opportunities to be self-controlled. And then that's how you grow in it. Now, it's not your own strength. It's in the strength of spirit. We'll get to that. But there's something that is requiring our intentionality, a grace-driven effort to move into this. So let's talk about self-control. We'll, we'll look at it, what it is, what it isn't, and how to get it. What it is, what it isn't, and how to get it. What it is is basically going to be the whole message, so don't freak out when I get like most of the way through this and you're going, he hasn't even hit the second point yet. I'll get there. Exercise some self-control. <clears throat> Galatians 5, 22 to 23. How about I exercise some self-control, right? Maybe we'll go there. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Quickly, let's look at this. What does he mean when he says against such things there is no law? Well, laws are put in place to curb our bent desires. Laws are put in place to restrain or to deter us from bad behavior. But when the evidence of the Holy Spirit or the fruit of the Holy Spirit at work in the community of God's people, when it's evident that way, we don't need a law to deter us because we're walking in the Spirit. His point is, when we're walking in step with the Spirit, like we've been talking about the last two weeks, the fruit of the Spirit is evident in our lives as people who follow Jesus. The law actually is out of a job. The law has nothing to do. We don't need a law against such things. The fruit of the Spirit, there is no law. Now, we look at this list. There's nine fruit of the Spirit that we're talking about. Uh, You could make an argument that I'm making too big of a deal out of self-control by pointing out self-control individually in a sermon and that maybe we should have preached a sermon on one of the other ones. And I think that's fine. I think you could make an argument against that. Uh, But I do think there's a reason that the list starts with love and that the list completes with self-control. I think Paul begins the list with love because love is supposed to have a primary place in the life of the follower of Jesus. If you don't have love, you have nothing. Right When somebody was trying to trip Jesus up uh, and they were trying to make him look bad and they came to him and they said, hey, hey, teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law? Verse 37 of Matthew 22, he said to them, Jesus said to them, to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So he says, love God, love your neighbor. He says, you need to have love for God and love for people. So love's a big deal. Love is foundational. Now, the passage I'm going to read you in a second is get read at weddings all the time. And I think any marriages that are actually built on this passage in 1 Corinthians 13, I think it's a good thing. I think that's probably going to be a strong marriage if it's built on the foundation of God's love for us and our love for one another. But don't forget that the context that 1 Corinthians 13 was written in was a, a conversation about how this community was supposed to work together and how they were supposed to relate to one another, how they were supposed to gather and what it should look like when they gathered and how they were supposed to live their lives apart from the gathering and what that meant and looked like for them. It was talking about church relationship. 1 Corinthians 13 says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I've got prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver my body to be burned and have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. 
Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three But the greatest of these is love. Love is foundational in the Christian church. Without love, your peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control don't matter. Without love. Biblical love. Love of God. Love for God. Love of people and love for people. That's why I think love is the first one listed here. But I think something's going on by listing self-control last. I think Paul begins this list with love because we have to remind ourselves time and time again that it is foundational. But I think he concludes with self-control because without self-control, I doubt anyone will ever see your love. Without self-control, I doubt you can be peaceful and patient and kind and good and faithful and gentle. Trying to live all of these things out without self-control, it's like trying to carry a a big bag of groceries in the paper bag. You ever get the paper bag? Because you love the planet? Yeah, me too. You get the paper bag and you carry it out and it's super awkward because it doesn't have handles. And then you set it down on the ground so you can fumble for your keys so you can open the latch. And then you pick it back up again and because the ground is wet, everything just falls out the bottom. Okay, that's like trying to have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, apart from self-control. It's kind of like putting them all in the bag, picking it up and going, oh, the bottom just fell out. Think about it, because if, if we are without self-control, think about it in terms of our relationships. For, for you who are single, can you obey God, glorify God, in your sexuality apart from self-control? Think about you who are married. Can you be faithful to your spouse and glorify God in your marriage without self-control? Can you be generous in your life without self-control in your spending, right? Where you don't consume all of your wealth and income on yourself. Like you could just fill in every category. And I think when it comes down to it, without self-control, a lot of these things just aren't possible. And we're not the only ones talking about this. Um, A fair amount of writing was done, thinking was done in the ancient Greek and Jewish philosophical worlds on the topic of self-control, like Plato talked about it, uh, the Stoics talked about it. And there's even a fair amount of attention being given to it today within secular writing and secular journals of psychology and such, uh, marking it out as the answer to a whole bunch of different things from depression to retiring young. Self-control being lifted up quite high as a virtue that we should learn again particularly in the North American context, is what they were getting at. 
Uh, Aristotle was a, a, an ancient Greek philosopher who's one of the founders of what we think of when we think of Western philosophy. He wrote about self-control in his ethics. Uh, Philo was a Jewish philosopher who was alive at the same time as Paul, who wrote this letter to the Galatians. He worked out um, his, his goal sort of to harmonize the Old Testament and Greek philosophy. And he wrote about self-control as it relates to the 10th of the Ten Commandments. You know, the one that teaches us how not to covet our neighbor's stuff. He said that self-control was a big one for that. He's trying to take Greek philosophy and then look at the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, and he was trying to fuse those two. In one place, he actually, he basically says self-control is a foundational virtue that you can then build all of your other virtues upon. Now, I think in the Christian church, in our understanding of what it means to follow Jesus, love is our foundational virtue, but I think there's a reason he caps off the list of self-control. Um, there's actually some ancient Jewish literature from around the time that the New Testament was written that it's certainly not biblical, uh, but I think it can be helpful. And uh, whoever wrote it had some thoughts on self-control too. They said, observe now, first of all, that rational judgment is sovereign over the emotions by virtue of the restraining power of self-control. Self-control then is dominance over the desires. Okay, so I say all that to say this. Uh, when Paul is writing the letter to the churches of Galatia who are currently devouring one another over issues of how to understand and implement the significance of the gospel in their lives, they're fracturing within the body of Christ. There's pain and fissure and there's all sorts of different uh, brokenness relationally going on. Paul says, look, love? Yes. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, but also self-control. I think that's what he's saying. Jesus modeled for us an others-centered love. And apart from self-control, I just don't think that's possible. I think they work in tandem. But what makes Galatians 5 so important as we consider what self-control looks like in our lives is not um, that it's something that is produced when you put yourself at the center. I think that's the point. Paul calls it self-control, but he never implies anywhere that that means self-sufficiency. Right? We get a little scary when we put the word self in something. As Christians, we're like, oh, we're not into ourselves. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. But self-control is not for you. Hey, self-control is for your service unto God and your service unto others. So that's the point of self-control. And if you make the point of self-control something else, then I don't really know that it's the Christian virtue Paul's talking about here in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. One biblical definition of self-control is that it proceeds out from within oneself, but not by oneself. Meaning, yeah, it comes through you, but it's not produced by you in your own strength. So that's self-sufficiency thing. It's self-control. Um, we'll come back to that. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28 says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. A um, person without self-control is what it's saying, is living in a dangerous place. Uh, as dangerous as trying to defend your ancient city when your walls have been torn down. Now, I'm not sure if you've watched the news lately, but the dangers of a lack of self-control have been in the headlines for years, though the news agencies might not call it a lack of self-control that leads to it. Um, politicians, actors, directors, um, priests, pastors, theologians, uh, they've all been removed from office or their 
particular actors or directors, Screen Guild, uh, they've been removed from ministry for sin that runs freely through their life because of a lack of self-control. It's not just famous people. Owen Strachan said, Now more than ever, one moment can destroy in one day your life's work. The essential virtue? Self-control. You can have all the talent in the world and draw a ton of attention for it, but if your ability is not matched by strong character, you are in a precarious place. A precarious place like having your city beaten down and defeated and the walls of your city broken and trying to defend it. So I'm arguing that self-control is important, so what is it? What it is, what it isn't, how to get it. I'm going to give you three angles from three different Greek words from three different books of the Bible on how we should work toward a biblical definition of what self-control is. So uh, here we go first, 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. Therefore, an overseer or an elder must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, and it continues on. Uh, Here the Greek word behind the English self-controlled. Uh, is focusing in a way that talks about a reasonable, balanced life. This is uh, one one commentator defined it as a man who does not command himself, but rather is commanded by God. I like that. I think that's self-control. You're not commanded by self, but commanded by God. Um, It also, when it says balanced, uh, doesn't mean a sort of, you know, boring vanilla down the middle of the road balanced. Like, there's boring balance. I think we can agree on that, right? No? Okay. I don't do balance that well. Really? Actually, I don't. I'm growing in this. But it's not a boring balance where you're like, oh, well, just life sucks. Like, everything's just 50%. What color should I get? Beige. Right? Like, that's not what I'm talking about. You go to Ernest for ice cream. Do you have vanilla? Right? Like, yeah, vanilla's great. Throw some cookie dough in there, though. Come on. We're not talking about boring down the middle. What we're talking about is a a person who is not prone to erratic behavior. I would say, in a certain sense, predictable. Predictability is a good thing, just as long as it's not boring and balanced. Okay. Second, uh, James chapter 1, verse 26. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart... This person's religion is worthless. James knows how to cut to the chase, right? James gets to it. Uh, The word I'm looking at here is bridal. Bridal is the focus. Uh, For you city kids, uh, let me explain what a bridal is. A bridal is the headgear that you see on a horse, the straps, the bit that goes in its mouth, the reins that you hold on to. Okay? I've never ridden a horse, actually, in my whole life. I know I'm from the country. I was just sort of joking. But I know what a bridal is. Okay. Bridling yourself is... Is, is, is kind of the same thing as saying you have self-control. And, and I know that because we have a, a, a scholar who focused her work on the book of James in our community group, and I asked her to make sure I was right. James's point is if you can't control your tongue, then what you say you believe probably is not in you. Look at it again. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Bridling the tongue, that's a picture of self-control. Later on in James, James chapter 3, verse 2, it says, For we all stumble in many ways. 
And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. We're not talking about perfect as though um, without flaw. We're talking about perfect in the sense of wholeness or, or being made whole by Christ or complete or virtuous. And so James is saying, if you can have the self-control to mind your tongue, mind your speech, you can have the self-control to mind your actions. And if you can do that, You're a virtuous person. You're someone who has been transformed and is being transformed by the goodness of God to us in the gospel and in the power of the Spirit. That's what he's getting at. That's the second biblical uh, angle I want to look at. The third biblical angle is from our text today, Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is, and then in verse 23 says, self-control. Here the word is different from the other two. Uh, It gets more to the idea of restraining sinful passions having some sense of inner control. Right? But like I said before, self-control does not, apply, it does not imply self-sufficiency. You don't do it on your own. So if we're trying to define it, and we want to take these three ideas from these three texts, and we want to maybe blend them together in a way, we want to comprehensively look at what a biblical definition of self-control would be for us. And we could say something like this. Self-control is doing the right thing even when you don't feel like it. I think that's a very good definition of self-control. I think it's true, but I think it's not quite getting to the heart of God's revelation to us in Scripture on the topic. I think that's a good definition that anybody who is not a follower of Jesus could come up with. Self-control is doing the right thing even when you don't want to. Self-control is going to the gym even though you hate it. Right? Self-control is only having two donuts because the third one might make you unhealthy. No, self-control is doing the right thing even when you don't want to. It's true. But here's why it's different, I think, biblically. Because the right thing, the right thing in life is defined by God, not us. That's why it's different for Christians. So, biblical, Holy Spirit-empowered self-control has an element to it of listening to and obeying the commands of God as revealed in Scripture. has an element to being informed by what God would say is the right thing to do. It's about surrendering your living to His will for your life. So so here's the definition that I'd like to bring forward. I would like to say self-control is actively surrendering your will to the will of God. And in dependence on the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, seeking to align your actions to the commands of God. Self-control is actively surrendering your will to the will of God and seeking to align your actions to the commands of God. You could say it like this. Self-control is actively surrendering your will and works to the will of God. That's what it is. And here's what it's not. Whenever we talk about the way that we are supposed to live our lives in Christ, I want us to always be motivated by our freedom in the gospel. And I want us to be very aware of not steering into two ditches on the topic of self-control. I want us to stay down the middle of the road where the gospel leads us and guides us and prepares a way for us. So first, when we talk about self-control, you might hear me say mere behavior modification. And I'm not saying that. 
Self-control will lead to behavior modification, but self-control is not mere behavior modification because mere behavior modification is moralism, and that is antithetical to the gospel. Moralism says we need to control our passions and our behavior, but moralism says we need to control our passions and behavior out of a fear of judgment. I think the gospel is better than that. Right? Moralism is the, the picture of self-control. It's just gritting your teeth and just bearing down and grinding it out and making it happen. Okay, there's room for that in our lives, but if that's all you got, you're in trouble because that eventually falls apart. Moralism always sounds like do better and try harder. That's not the gospel. That's one ditch. The other ditch that I think we could veer off the road and and head into on the topic of self-control is when you think that self-control would lead you to some kind of joyless, automated existence where you don't control your passions, you just mute them completely. Where you sort of walk around like a passionless person. No desire. I think there's an understanding in our culture of this. Of self-control looks like stoicism. It looks like this, this ability to not be moved by anything. And you just stand resolved. Never happy, never sad, steady. That's not self-control. Self-control is not a joyless muting or suppression of our desires. Self-control, biblical self-control says your passions and desires just need to be reordered in surrender to God, aligned with his will. When I say surrender, I don't mean like where you just give up and stop trying. I'm talking about active surrender, where you actively put yourself under his authority and walk according to his will. The realization that comes, and and those of you who follow Jesus for a little while would know this, the realization that comes of being in relationship with God is that you actually have new joys and new desires and new dimensions of joy and desire that open up in front of you that you didn't even know existed before. Like, this is why I love stuff like C.S. Lewis and the wardrobe that opens the door to Narnia. When you come to Christ, it's like walking into a new new chapter of life. It opens up to something of a world that you didn't even know existed, and all of a sudden, your joys and desires start to get piqued, and they're aligned with the will of God. Something beautiful happens. So self-control is not fear-driven moralism. Self-control is not, in the other ditch, joyless suppression of all passion and desires. But I would say self-control is a joyful, joy-filled, fearless surrender to the better story of the gospel. It's aligning your will with the will of God. So the gospel tells us that the free grace of God empowers us to actually say no to our sinful passions. It's not pretending they don't exist. I'm not not that guy. I'm saying that it tells us that we have the power in the Spirit to say no to that. But with the knowledge that God is calling us to do something, say no to something, God is always going to provide the empowerment to do it. If he gives us a command, he always gives us what we need to accomplish it. So we're not on our own. Again, self-control is not self-sufficiency. This, this text I'm going to read you in Titus chapter 2, it's a, it's a fusion of the truth of the gospel with how the gospel actually changes our lives. Look at this, Titus two eleven to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, 
and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Do you see he provides the way for us to be welcomed into his family, but he also gives us the ability uh, and trains us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and self-control, and live in self-controlled lives here in this present age. Not just like one time in the future where it's going to be okay, but right now. Right? The gospel shows us the better story of biblical self-control that it's fruit produced by the work of the Spirit in our lives as we live in active surrender to the will of God. So that's what it is. That's what it isn't. Well, how do you get it? John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide, we've talked about this a few weeks ago. Uh, Remain or dwell. It's this image of a grapevine. Grapevine growing out of the ground, roots deep into the soil, bringing nutrition, nutrients to the vine. The vine grows up. If you've ever been to a vineyard, you know the vine dresser stretches out the vine along the line that he wants it to go on or she wants it to go on, and they strap it to the apparatus that's built, and the vine grows. The vine is where all the power comes from in that certain sense, and in season, branches begin to grow off. The branches grow off, and in season, that's where the grapes grow. That's where the fruit is. Jesus is saying, abide in me and I in you. The branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. He's saying your life cannot flourish if you're not connected to me. If you're not abiding in me, dwelling with me, remaining in me, in relationship with me. Now, on the other hand, though, if you take this for apart from me, you can do nothing. If you take that verse and you flip it around and you go, what if I am abiding in Christ? Right? He says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. But but what if you are abiding in Christ? What if you are in relationship to Jesus? Well, I think there's a promise here. We're promised to bear fruit if we abide in Christ. I am the vine, he says. You are the branches. I think that's Jesus' way of saying, don't forget it. You can't do this on your own. What you do to produce godly fruit in your life is you stay grafted into me. I will nourish you. I will make you fruitful. See, Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. And if we live out of the power of that relationship with him, we will bear fruit in our lives precisely because without him, we can't do anything. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, when it says that, it doesn't mean nothing as though nothing. There's lots of people who don't know Jesus who are doing lots of things in this world. There's lots of people who don't know Jesus who practice some form of self-control. When he says nothing, he means nothing of eternal value. It's not speaking about accumulation. It's not speaking in in a quantitative sense. It's speaking about 
the fruit of our lives in a qualitative sense. It's talking about the kind of fruit that gets produced in our lives as we abide in Christ, the kind of fruit that looks like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control and a bunch of other things that are signs that God is at work in your life and the trajectory that you're on is growing closer and closer to him. That's what makes Galatians chapter 5 so important as we consider the idea of self-control. It's that it's something that is not produced by putting yourself at the center you don't get it by being self-centered you don't you get it by being christ-centered self-control not self-sufficiency it may seem counterintuitive but a life of self-control acknowledges the work of the cross work that was accomplished on your behalf by someone else it, it acknowledges the power of the resurrection. Work accomplished for you, but by someone else. It acknowledges that God, the Holy Spirit, dwells in you. That you are full of the Holy Spirit of God. And that he draws you into an abiding relationship with Christ. And he is the one who produces fruit in your life. You can't do it on your own. But isn't that great? I stink on my own. I'm the worst. You should see me on a bad day. Just like, go get full of the Holy Spirit again. Dumb, dumb. Work this out. I was trying to explain to one of my kids that I'm just a lot better person if I read my Bible in the morning. Because I'm so self-centered. And I can be self-centered and disciplined too. But it's still self-centered. Ah, but if I get God's word in me become Christ-centered, and I lean toward Christ-centeredness, and I lean on him, and I depend on him, and I abide in him, and when I abide in him, I know that I can live a fruitful life that glorifies him in every way. So the gospel message, the, the core of Christianity, is that we live in a world that was created good, but that is desperately fallen and broken, that sin entered in and mucked it all up, and that we need a mediator, a savior, who can restore and reconcile all things on our behalf. So when we talk about our union with Christ, we're talking about being united with him in his death. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we're talking about being counted in with him as he died in our place for our sin. We're saying that I take all my sin and I have gifted it to Christ, so to speak, that he has taken it. That he has atoned for it. That he removes it. And then he also gifts me his righteousness. His perfect record. He takes my blemished record and he gives me his perfect record. Union with Christ is everything. In his death he takes upon himself judgment for sin. And in his resurrection he overcomes death that we might have life. And we are united in his death and we are united in his resurrection. Our union with Christ is this uniting of all of our sin, all of our brokenness, with all of his forgiveness and with all of his wholeness. And so when we repent of sin, we can gain a right standing before him. Not because of how great we are, but because of what Christ did on our behalf. Abiding in Christ is presently living out of the fullness of our union with him. All fruitful Christian living 
comes out of abiding in Christ. So true spirit-filled self-control is not about you. It's about God and it's about others. Would you stand with me today as we respond? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.